and in my own research I have shown that if you make people believe that they're going to have a mystical experience, for instance with a placebo god helmet. So we told people we were stimulating their brain, that they might have a mystical experience even though we did nothing to their brain, but uh, uh, about 20% of the participants in the study still had a full-blown mystical experience. Hello, you are listening to Studium Generale, the podcast of the Erasmus University. My name is David Boeren, Program Maker Science. Together with my colleagues, I organize lectures, workshops, film screenings, and more for students, but also for non-students, to broaden their horizons. Can psychedelics change your life? Does microdosing with LSD really make you more creative? And is ayahuasca the solution to depression and addiction? These are all interesting questions. And in this lecture, Dr. Milchiel van Elk will therefore explain how a single substance can change our experience of the world, how psychedelics work in our brain, and who should or should better not take them. Dr. Michiel van Elk is associate professor at Leiden University, where he does psychological and neuroscientific research on psychedelics. In 2021, he published his book, A Nuchtere Kijk op Psychedelica, which freely translates to a scientific perspective on psychedelics, something which he will provide for us in this lecture. Are you interested in more of these kinds of lectures? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube channel, at SG Erasmus, for upcoming events, or as you are doing right now, to listen to some of our previous events. Have fun listening to this lecture. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the kind introduction, uh, David, and thanks for the invitation. Welcome, everyone, here. It's great to be talking to a real physical audience again. Welcome at home as well. Thanks for joining in tonight. After all these lockdowns, it's really a pleasure to be at the university and to talk about a topic that is really close to my heart, which is the scientific research on psychedelics. And what are we actually talking about when we're talking about psychedelics? Maybe the first association that comes to mind is Timothy Larry, the drugs guru from the 1960s, who started out his career as a very promising scholar at Harvard University, but soon turned out to be a leading figure in the hippie movement and called everyone to take psychedelics massively. He even proposed to put psychedelics in the drinking water supply uh, so that everyone would get enlightened. And the authorities were so frightened by him that eventually this launched the, lo the war on drugs. Or maybe your association is with cliches as you see them in a movie like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. If you talk about psychedelics, you talk about taking acid taking psilocybin, uh, taking mescaline, having all these weird visual associations. And that is actually the most prevalent associations that people have, the most stereotypical associations that people have with psychedelics. It is as if you open the door and suddenly you stare into the Andromeda galaxy that opens wide in front of you. It's, are these, those are the type of substances that trigger bizarre experiences that put people out of their mind, that drive people crazy, that make people jump out of windows. But is that actually accurate? Is that an accurate characterization of psychedelics? What will I do? The lecture will consist of four parts. First part, what are psychedelics? What are we actually talking about when we talk about psychedelics? This will actually be a rather short part. Then the second part, clinical applications. How can psychedelics be used? What is the current available evidence for the clinical efficacy of psychedelics for a wide variety of different disorders? 
what is the current state of the art in the field. Third, mechanisms. Once we know how psychedelics can be used for clinical disorders, how does this actually work? How can we account for the effects that happen? If psychedelics can cure depression, how can we explain this? What is in the black box between the psychedelic and the outcome? And how can we account for this? And then I'll add with, uh, end with some concluding remarks and a word of caution uh, about this research. And I try to put it in perspective, doing justice to the title of this uh, talk, a sober or a realistic perspective on psychedelics, a scientific perspective. So there's definitely an increased societal interest in psychedelics. And we see this, for instance, in the increased interest for people attending a psychedelic retreat. So many people go on an ayahuasca retreat or a psilocybin retreat. There are more than 70 centers in the Netherlands, 70, uh, so seven zero centers offering psilocybin retreats, legal travel retreats, where you sign up for a retreat, you meet with the people organizing the ceremony, and you participate for like a one-day or a three-day or even a five-day retreat, where you repeatedly take a high dose of magic truffles or ayahuasca or mescaline, depending on the ceremony that you sign up for. And you see that there's an increased interest in doing this and for expanding those retreats uh, also in other countries. So, for instance, in Oregon, uh, psilocybin is now being legalized and they're also trying to expand there in terms of organizing psilocybin retreats. Another societal trend is the trend uh, for uh, to engage in psilocybin microdosing. I already mentioned it during the quiz. So the idea behind microdosing is that you do not get the full-blown psychedelic experience, but you take a tiny amount of psychedelics just below the perceptual threshold. You actually take so little that you don't notice the subjective perceptual effect. So there are no hallucinogenic effects on your subjective experience. And people do this for a variety of different reasons, as we saw already. Increased creativity, enhanced well-being, uh, curing depression, out-of-the-box thinking, cognitive enhancement, better focus, you name it. Um, and there are even now commercial microdosing kits available on the market that you can buy to do this on a regular basis. And I think uh, the topic of psychedelics has even been further popularized, popularized by the popular science book of Michael Pollan, How to Broaden Your Mind, The New Science of Psychedelics, in which he describes his self-experiments with psychedelics. He engages in uh, a lot of self-experiments in which he takes psychedelics and he describes his experiences. But also he talks a lot to the scientists doing the psychedelic research. And I think one of uh, the, 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 the ways in which you can characterize the psychedelic revival is because of this book, it has put the topic back on the agenda and it has shown that also mainstream journalists, mainstream scientists, even mainstream politicians are seriously interested in psychedelic science. And serious research is currently being conducted on this topic on a wide variety of different places in, across the world. And we're talking often about the psychedelic revival. And that, uh, of course, references to the 1960s, where there was also an increased interest in psychedelic uh, substances. So I, I already mentioned Timothy Larry, but at the time, across many different places in the US, but also in Europe, there were a lot of centers doing research with psychedelic substances, mainly clinical applications, seeking uh, if psychedelics could treat depression, anxiety, addiction. And now again, we see a similar interest. And it is called the psychedelic revival because the extent to which um, there is being, uh, research, research is being conducted on these substances, it is enormous. It's really across the globe, many research centers are really active, even more so than in the 60s. So we can really speak of a psychedelic revival in that sense. But again, what are we actually talking about if we talk about psychedelics? And it's maybe good to point out that there is not one clearly accepted definition of what a psychedelic is. 
So psychedelics is an umbrella term that is used in a kind of fuzzy way, and not in a not very precisely or clearly defined way. But one uh, kind of classification that we see more and more often, uh, and that provides a useful tool to think about psychedelics, is this one, that basically makes a dissociate or um, that makes a distinction between dissociatives as one class of psychedelics. So sulfia divinorum and ketamine belong to this category. So they trigger a dissociative experience. People feel dissociated, can have an out-of-body experience, feel as if there's a screen between them and the world. Then there's the class of empathogens, so ecstasy and MDMA, but also 2CB uh, uh, belongs to this category. So these substances uh, increase feelings of connectedness, talk, uh, talkativeness, and they make people feel connected and feel emotionally attached to someone close by. And then there's the category of classical psychedelics. And they are also called serotonergic hallucinogens. So they, with eyes closed, they cause visual hallucinations. So in this category, we have mescaline, uh, which is derived from the peyote cactus, LSD, DMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, in the ayahuasca brew, and psilocybin, which is actually the active substance in magic mushrooms and magic truffles. So when we talk about psychedelics, most people often refer to these three different categories. And we, when we talk about psychedelic research, also often these different uh, uh, categories are mentioned. So ketamine therapy, MDMA therapy, and psilocybin therapy are all considered part of psychedelics. But most of the research is actually be being conducted and focused on classical psychedelics. And this is also where I will focus on mostly today. So the emphasis will be mostly on classical psychedelics. Why is that? Because they uh, function somewhat in a similar way. So you can characterize them based on their working mechanism, which I will come back to during the third part of this talk. But as you can already see from this uh, uh, characterization of the molecular structure of uh, classical psychedelics, they all look like the serotonin molecule, which is a molecule that is quite prevalent in our body and in our, in our brain. It is involved in the transmission of uh, neural signals, among other things. Uh, so it signals information. And you can see that psilocybin, DMT, and LSD look very much like this molecule. And also their mechanism of action is primarily for, for via the serotonin receptor. So this is a kind of uh, homogeneous class of substances that more or less can be characterized along a similar way. And this is where the emphasis will be mostly on today. Today I will focus mainly on the potential clinical applications of psychedelics, but of course there are also some risks involved. So some risks of classical psychedelics uh, involve uh, that they can trigger psychosis. So if you have psychosis proneness in your family, in your close family like a brother or sister or a nephew, it is often uh, not recommended at, at all to use psychedelics because psychedelics can trigger psychosis in psychosis-prone people a full-blown psycho psychotic episode. So this is a clear contraindication. Serotonin syndrome. So in combination with specific medication, uh, psychedelics can actually induce a surplus, uh, too much of serotonin in your system, and this can also be life-threatening and dangerous. So it's always important to screen for the use of other medication that might not interfere with the serotonin receptor. In the literature, you see a lot of discussion on the so-called hallucinogenic perceptual persistent disorder, HPPD. So after psychedelic use, many people report seeing flashbacks, seeing flutter across their 
uh, their eyes on, or on their retina, having distorted visual perception. So this is also a disorder that has been characterized, and there's a lot of discussion now on whether this is a true disorder or whether these cases already had damage to their perceptual system prior to the use of psychedelics, but at least this has been reported in the literature as a side effect of psychedelics as well. A bad trip is, I think, the most obvious risk of the use of classical psychedelics. So a bad trip is mostly characterized by anxiety and fear of losing your mind. So anxiety of letting go of control, resistance of submitting to the trip, but also anxiety that you will always stay like this, that you took something, that it changed your mind, and that somehow this will never end, and the altered time perception associated with psychedelics can make this seem like an endless journey. On the, pos on the more positive side, uh, psychedelics, classical psychedelics, uh, don't have a high risk for an overdose. So the lethal dose is really, really high and way beyond a dose you would ever consume when you, uh, for instance, take natural uh, magic truffles or uh, magic mushrooms. And also, classical psychedelics are not mentally and physically addictive. It has never been shown that people develop an addiction for uh, classical psychedelics because the experience in itself is so overwhelming that it's not typically the experience that people seek out on a more regular or frequent basis. Uh, so to say. Note that this amounts for classical psychedelics. This does not account for ketamine, for instance, or for MDMA. So there, th the profile is a bit different. And for ketamine, for instance, there is a, re a real risk of uh, overdosing and for the substance being physically addictive. So now that we have a better view of what we mean when we talk about psychedelics, let's focus on clinical applications. What, what are psychedelics good for? How can they be used? And maybe, uh, also for in, uh, out, of, out of interest for most of you uh, who have experience with microdosing, let's start with the evidence for microdosing. So with microdosing, people take a tiny amount of, for instance, LSD that is typically dissolved in alcohol uh, to um, do a vol volumetric dosing, or a tiny amount of truffles uh, that you can, for instance, put in a capsule on a regular basis. Mostly people do this on a, a three-day interval, so you take on day one, then you have a two-day or a three-day break, and then you do it again. And the idea is that doing this repeatedly, it almost works like an antidepressant. Over time, you feel better, you feel more creative, you experience cognitive enhancement. And if you look at why people microdose, so these have uh, many studies have been conducted on why people are motivated to engage in microdosing, you see that they report a variety of reasons. So improving mood is the most prevalent one, uh, decreasing anxiety, uh, enhancing creativity, cognitive enhancement, having more focus, increased sociability, and reduced physical complaints. So some people who suffer from, for instance, cluster headache, one of these unknown medical disorders, they find benefit from microdosing. And if you look at the available evidence on whether microdosing is actually helpful, if it uh, can be used to treat people, the evidence is a kind of mixed bag, I would say. So on the one hand, you find a lot of studies showing that people who microdose feel better. However, most of those studies are so-called cross-sectional in nature, which means they're not longitudinal. They're just asking people at this point in time, do you microdose? If so, how do you feel right now? And those studies report positive associations. People who microdose feel better, feel more creative, etc. But of course, there's a huge selection bias in terms of the people who participate in the study, but also in terms of the answers that people give, because people who microdose know they're microdosing, and therefore they're prone to the placebo effect. 
So they know they're doing something, they're taking a psychoactive substance, and therefore they feel better. So in order to rule out the placebo effect, you need placebo-controlled studies, in which you give one group of people a microdose, another group of people a placebo, you ask them to do this for a couple of weeks, and you monitor how they're feeling over, over that time, then you cross the condition assignment, for instance, and then you see if there's a systematic difference between the microdosing and the placebo group. If you do that, uh, most of the studies that, that have come out right now basically show that microdosing is not doing any better than placebo. So we have done research on this uh, ourselves at Leiden University, and we found that the moment people start with the study, basically all the groups improve. So all people start feeling better, they feel more, more energetic, more creative, etc. But that is the same for both the microdosing group and the placebo group. So that shows that there's a huge placebo effect in general going on, irrespective of whether people are taking a microdose or not. And currently the available evidence is just ambiguous. It could be that microdosing is doing something. Kim Kuipers from Maastricht University is showing, for instance, that microdosing has downstream effects on your body and that it results in objectively measurable changes. However, so far no study has ever been able to show that it really improves your mood or really improves your creativity in a very consistent way. So it works if you believe in it. And there might be effects beyond expectancy or placebo effects, but so far science has not provided convincing evidence for that. For that. If you then focus on other clinical applications of psychedelics, so where you take actually or you give people higher doses, uh, the first uh, most widely used application that you see these days of psychedelics is the use of ketamine, which is an MDMA antagonist, uh, it's, so it's also known as a dissociative anesthetic. So the subjective effects of ketamine involve feelings of floating, derealization or depersonalization, out-of-body experiences, and at higher doses, the uh, involvement of a kale, the disappearance in a kind of black hole. Uh, but also, uh, you see that clinical applications in which people get a moderate dose of ketamine uh, provide promising treatment for major depression disorder. So mostly this is off-label use, but in the US it has also been approved by the FDA for the treatment of depression. And you see that more and more instances and clinics are now offering ketamine uh, therapy in which basically the patient comes in the clinic, gets an infusion with ketamine, feels better for some time and then returns for another dose of ketamine. So this is, for instance, a company that's now also active in the Netherlands field trip that in the uh, US offers, uh, uh, amongst others, ketamine therapy for uh, depressive patients. The effects of ketamine are short-lasting. So people improve, but the improvement is only there for about one to three weeks. And after that, they develop again their symptoms and they need another dose. And that's why many psychiatrists actually believe that the effects of ketamine are primarily at a pharmacological level. So they somehow change the balance of neurotransmitters in the brain, therefore the patient feels better, but after a while, if this is not sustained, then the patient relapses again in the former uh, complaints. Uh, so there's, that's also the downside, like you need repeated doses and people develop tolerance for this. Uh, so that's one of the negative sides that's often overlooked in these uh, trials. Uh, but there's now a discussion on whether this is a desirable therapy that we actually want for people to become dependent basically on ketamine for their depression. But if you look at the stories uh, of individual people describing how suddenly they, their world cleared up after a single dose of ketamine, it's really overwhelming and really uh, uh, mind-blowing. 
The second uh, major uh, application of psychedelics is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the use for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. So also here you see that currently uh, phase three uh, studies have been conducted and the results are very promising. Uh, so the FDA is also planning to, uh, take it to, to look at the approval for this medicine on the market in uh, Northern uh, America. So MDMA is an empathogen, so the mechanism of action is primarily the release of serotonin via the serotonin transporter mechanism. Subjective effects include increased energy, empathy, enhanced communication, intimacy, and enhanced sensory perception. And of course, many people associate this with like the typical party drug, but in a therapeutic ses session, the effects can be quite different. They enable patients to connect more strongly to their body, to connect more strongly to their emotions, to really feel the trauma. And this somehow helps them to put their life in a different perspective. And basically it is like uh, EMD EMDR therapy, um, which is this rapid eye movement therapy where people go back to a traumatic experience and by making the eye movement, they're desensitizing to the trauma. Basically, MDMA is doing this in high speed. It makes the trauma really accessible so that it becomes less overwhelming. So we've discussed ketamine, MDMA, and uh, uh, these days a lot of research is also focused on the clinical application of classical psychedelics, such as LSD uh, and uh, psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic truffles. So the mechanism is uh, the serotonergic uh, me mechanism. That's also why they're called serotonergic hallucinogens. They act on a serotonin receptor. Other terms are psychoto, uh, psychotomimetic. Uh, this is a term that was invented in the 1950s because psychiatrists observed that many of the symptoms that people displayed during uh, the use of psychedelics were reminiscent of psychosis. So the initial idea of psychedelics is that they could act as a model of psychosis. And later on, the term entheogen was uh, coined, which is basically a substance used in a ri ritual setting to enable communication with the divine, a topic I'll return to later. So subjective effects of psychedelics includes, uh, include uh, eyes-closed hallucinations. So when you close your eyes, you see strong visual effects, overwhelming, powerful geometric patterns, architecture, uh, traveling to different universes, etc. Most often when people open their eyes, there are still distortions in perception, but people can at least observe where they are. They can go to the bathroom. They are back in reality, so to say. So the, in that sense, psychedelics do not occasion true hallucinations because a hallucination is a false perception. And psychedelics only trigger those when you have your eyes closed, but not with eyes open. That's very rare to occur. Other uh, subjective effects include synesthesia, the merging of sensory modalities. So what you feel is associated with what you hear. Sounds are associated with what you see, so all kinds of the senses are merged into a total experience. Many people report a magic reality, spiritual encounters, mystical experiences and ego dissolution, which are all topics we'll return to later on. And the therapeutic applications for psychedelics, for classical psychedelics, are ever increasing. So initial research focused mostly on depression and death and, life and end of life anxiety. But we see also that it's expanded to addiction, but also PTSS, obsessive-compulsive disorder. And this list it keeps on expanding. So autism is also a potential venue of application that is currently being explored. And the question is, how can it be that a single substance can account for, uh, can help to treat such a wide variety of different disorders? 
So one explanation could be that it's all a placebo effect, because of placebo effects we also know that they're quite generic and that they can account for anything. That's part of the explanation, but also, of course, it could very well be that there's a common mechanism of action underlying psychedelics. So currently, uh, the, uh, there's no therapy, no legal therapy available for people with depression or anxiety. All that is ongoing are current clinical trials, doing research to see with placebo-controlled studies if psilocybin, that's the substance that received receives most attention, is efficient for the treatment of depression. But as of yet, there's no therapist that can actually legally offer these therapies. You see that there's a lot of underground therapists already offering these kind of therapies, but that's not, uh, they don't have a legal status, and it's kind of a very grayish area that uh, currently people are uh, exploiting and making money with. It's easy also to lose sight of the importance of the whole setting of psychedelic therapy. Because if you look at how it is often portrayed in the media, it is as if psilocybin is the magic bullet. So you give people psilocybin, they have this life-transforming experience, it puts life in a broader perspective, they have a full-blown mystical experience, and they feel better. But that overlooks the importance of the therapist being present in the experimental room with the participant, with the patient, paying careful attention to what the patient is telling, and also that this is an experience uh, that is not uh, standing by itself, but that you need to integrate the insights that you get in the daily experience. So it is not a magic bullet, but only a catalyst. It can induce change, but in order to reap the benefits of that change, you actually need also a long psychother psychotherapeutic program in which you repeatedly see the patient, you see how you can instill healthy habits like meditation, doing sports, uh, being kind to oneself, developing loving kindness, etc. So that is easy uh, to lose sight of in the current psychedelic revival. That's not just providing the substance, but the whole package that actually makes the difference. And even then, uh, if you look at the current available evidence for these different disorders, most of the studies have focused on depression, and the initial results were overwhelming. The effect sizes were enormous, which basically means that they were much more efficient than any therapy we, know, we knew, much more efficient than cognitive behavioral therapy or SSRIs. But those trials only involved, for instance, 10 or 12 patients, which is a very low sample size in clinical psychology. More recently, the sample sizes have been scaled up, and it turns out that with increased sample sizes, the effect sizes get smaller and more realistic, probably. So people improve, but they don't improve to the extent that the early trials reported. People feel better, but not so much better compared to conventional therapies. Of course, one big benefit of psychedelics is that people don't have to keep on using medication, but they take it once or twice and they improve. However, currently, most of the trials that have recently come out show that the improvement is not long-lasting. So people with depression improve for one week, for three weeks, but you see that a lot of people actually relapse after six weeks or three months. So currently the challenge for psychedelic research and clinical applications is to see how can you make sure that these effects are more long-lasting. And of course also a key question is, what is the mechanism? Like if, you, if we understand actually what is in this big black box in here between the psychedelic and the effects on all these different disorders, maybe we can also have a more targeted therapeutic approach. And this brings me to the uh, third part of my talk, in which I will discuss mechanisms underlying uh, psychedelics. How can we account for what happens when people take a psychedelic? And I will discuss three different mechanisms, focused on different levels of explanation. 
So we can distinguish between the pharmacological level, the neurocognitive level, and the psychological level. The pharmacological, le pharmacological level being the level of neurotransmitters, the neurocognitive level, the level of the brain, the psychological level, the level of experience. So I will now shortly go over what we know about what happens at the pharmacological, the neurocognitive, and the psychological level. So starting with the pharmacological level. So as I said, uh, classical psychedelics look very much like the serotonin molecule, and they connect basically to the serotonin receptors in the brain. And if you look at the density of those serotonin receptors, you can see that they are quite prevalent in different regions, but most prevalent in so-called multisensory regions or association regions. So these are thought of as high-level regions that are involved in the integration of information from multiple sensory modalities and more the high-level aspects of our subjective experience. But you can also see this, so this is a slightly different way of mapping out the density of serotonin receptors in the brain, that they're quite prevalent in so-called primary visual areas. So this is where visual information is being processed primarily in the brain. Uh, you can also see that the serotonin receptor density is really high there. And this also explains why psychedelics with eyes closed trigger these str strong visual effects. Even to the extent that uh, fMRI research has shown that if people are with the eyes closed in the scanner, that the visual brain regions light up to the same extent as if people are really watching something with the eyes open. So it is literally seeing with your eyes closed when people take psychedelics. So they act on the serotonin receptor. But at the same time, by doing that, they also trigger a whole cascade of other different pharmacological processes. So one of the mechanisms that has been identified is that through their action on the serotonin receptor, so-called 5-HT2A receptor, they uh, trigger the release of glutamate, which in turn also stimulates the production of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And these two pharmacological substances in turn have the effect uh, that they increase neuroplasticity. So there is research showing um, uh, that uh, those small doses of psychedelics like LSD, DMT or DOI can increase syn synaptic connections between different neurons and can increase synaptic growth under the influence of BDNF. And this is also one of the mechanisms that has been proposed as of why psychedelics can be helpful for people with depression. Because people with depression have reduced levels of BDNF. And one of the ideas is that psychedelics could re uh, increase BDNF levels and therefore might have their th therapeutic effects that they exert. One other mechanism that has been specified is that psychedelics also trigger anti-inflammatory mechanisms. So they reduce inflammation in the brain and in the body and therefore might also have a protective function on, for instance, our brain. So it has been shown that people with depression are also characterized by increased inflammatory um, uh, neurotransmitters in their brain and that psychedelics can reduce these levels and therefore might also have a protective effect. So those are the joint mechanisms at a pharmacological level that provide a plausible story as of why psychedelics might be so effective and also why they might be so generically effective, because these mechanisms are at play not only in depression, but in other psychopathologies as well. But of course, they also uh, act at a broader level. So if we zoom out a bit, so we're now focusing on the molecular level, but if we zoom out a bit at the brain level, we can also characterize what happens in the different brain areas involved. Uh, and basically, there are three important models that have been proposed for how psychedelics exert the effects that they have. The first one is known as the so-called filter model. And it's basically inspired by the metaphor that Aldous Huxley, the writer from the 60s, uh, took when he wrote about, it, about his first masculine and LSD experiences. 
that they opened the doors of perception. He made a, uh, the, uh, a comparison, he used the metaphor that psychedelics release the filter of your brain and that somehow the world seems more intense, more pure, more raw. All the colors are more powerful, are more saturated. And that this is what psychedelics do, they release the filter. And this is, of course, a more literary idea, but that finds uh, scientific follow-up in the research by mainly Franz Vollenweider, who's a, a neuroscientist from uh, Zurich, who has been doing research on psychedelics for more than uh, three decades. And he has basically shown that psychedelics increase activity in the prefrontal cortex, and that this in turn has an effect on the reticular nucleus and the thalamus. And that somehow the thalamus works as a cortical filter. So the thalamus determines the projection of sensory information to the rest of the brain. And that through, the re, uh, the, through this mechanism, the inhibitory function of the thalamus is released. And therefore, more sensory input is being projected to the other parts of the brain, which might result in a more intense perception of basically all the sensory modalities. So if you ask people uh, the most uh, about their, uh, what stands out most in terms of the subjective effects of psychedelics, many people note that touches feel more intense and feel more powerful, or uh, uh, odors feel uh, smell more intense. Uh, your sensory organs are all uh, amplified in a way. So this is well accounted for by this uh, filter model that basically proposes that the thalamus is reduced, uh, the th thalamic gating function is reduced, and therefore more information is projected to the rest of the cortex. So that is the first mechanism that has been proposed at the brain level. The second mechanism is the so-called claustrum model. The claustrum is a cortical area that is close to the insula that connects uh, the cortical regions with subcortical regions that is very dense in serotonin receptors. And it has been shown that the claustrum is involved in coordinating so-called microcircuits in the brain. So the brain operationalizes according to a kind of inherent dynamics. So each brain network has its own dynamics, and these are all coordinated. It is proposed by the claustrum that works like a conductor. I think this is the best metaphor that you can use to characterize this model. So the claustrum normally orchestrates the different brain networks and the dynamics of these brain networks. And psychedelics act basically by disrupting the conductor, by shutting down the claustrum, by changing activity, and therefore all the brain networks become more chaotic. And this accounts for the unpredictable and chaotic experience that people associate with psychedelics. So that is the second main model that has been proposed at the neural level for the effects of psychedelics. A third model that has gained most attraction, mostly because that accounts for the therapeutic effects of psychedelics, is the so-called Rebus model. So the uh, abbreviation Rebus stands for relaxed, belief under, relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics. And basically the premise of the model is that normally our brain functions like a pr prediction machine. We always predict what is out there, what is happening to us, and we continuously predict what we perceive. So all we have is the model that our brain makes of the world. We don't really perceive the way the world actually is. And psychedelics constrain this prior model. They loosen our predictions. And they make us more vulnerable to bottom-up prediction error signaling. So they basically reduce the top-down influence of our projections on what we perceive, and they make us more sensitive to surprise, basically. So normally, our perception is very much constrained by our beliefs. Our brain is a prediction machine, and if we see something that doesn't match our predictions, it will only cause a ripple in the surface. 
there's a small prediction error. But under psychedelics, all our beliefs are somehow loosened. And if we encounter something like a prediction error, this has huge effects on the updating of all our beliefs across the whole cortical hierarchy. And I think a couple of examples maybe help to exemplify this model. So for instance, normally our brain continuously predicts the location of our body and our hands. So whenever I move my hand through my visual field, my brain predicts where my hand will be. Uh, because it has access to the predictive signals that it sends to the muscles of my arm. And therefore I perceive always my arm where I expect it to be. But under psychedelics, these predictions are loosened. So it is more difficult for your visual system to remain uh, up to date as to where your arm is. And therefore many people when they are under psychedelics and they move their arm, they perceive visual trails. So there's a problem with the updating of what they see with what they uh, predict they will see. And also when you see, for instance, birds flying across the sky, many people report seeing trails, which is also a deficit with prediction error updating, because your brain has more difficulty predicting where the bird will appear next. Another uh, example of uh, what happens under psychedelics is the phenomenon of breathing walls. So normally, your perception of the world is constrained by what you know about the world. So you know that a wall is a solid object, that it is made of stone or of concrete, that it will not be able to move. But under psychedelics, this high-level belief, this high-level constraint of our perception is loosened. And therefore, if you see surfaces moving across the wall, suddenly it appears as if the wall is an organism and might be breathing. Normally, we're not able to perceive this because our knowledge of the world constrains our perception. But under psychedelics, we see shades moving across the wall and we interpret that as uh, the wall being an organic object. So this is also, also an example of um, the loosening of priors according to the Rebus model. And of course, these are so-called low-level perceptual priors that constrain our perception of the world. But predictive processing, or the Rebus model, also proposes that we have high-level models of ourselves, of our close others, and that these high-level beliefs are also represented in specific brain regions. And one of these brain regions is, for instance, the default mode network, which consists, for instance, of the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. So these brain regions are involved in questions like, who am I? Uh, do I have self-esteem? Uh, what types of role do I have in daily life? All those high-level thoughts that we use to define our narrative self, the stories we tell about ourselves. So these are represented in these brain regions. And one of the key findings that has been found and that has gained a lot of attention in the literature is that psychedelics reduce activity in the default mode network and that the strength of the reduction of the default mode network is correlated to the experience of ego dissolution, to the feeling that the self dissolves or the self is even dying, that the self no longer exists. So psychedelics loosen priors, also high-level priors related to the self. And this is a meme that has gained a lot of attention and it has been spread widely on social media. I recently even saw a street artist providing quite an accurate uh, reproduction of this meme. It's basically a, a visual illustration of the Rebus model of your brain under uh, a control condition and under psilocybin. So under psilocybin, uh, all the regular brain connections are reduced, but there's an increased crosstalk between brain regions that normally do not communicate with one another. And this might explain why psychedelics have the therapeutic effects they have. And a metaphor to explain that is the skiing slope. So normally our perception is always constrained by the paths we always take. If you're up on the skiing piece, you always take the same slope downwards. And the same accounts for 
a lot of psychopathologies that are characterized by rigidity in thinking, behavior, and uh, cognition. So they're kind of stuck in the same patterns. Every time they descend, they take the same pathway. I'm worthless, I don't have friends, I'm lonely, life is meaningless. The same kind of routine that always plays whenever people start at the top. And one of the mechanisms that has been proposed to account for the effects of psilocybin is that they shake up the cortical hierarchy. They shake up people's belief system and therefore people become more flexible to taking different routes in terms of processing information. And that this somehow induces a window, uh, a therapeutic window for change to instill more healthy habits and more healthy beliefs. But again, I think it's really good to be critical but if you, because if you closely look at the available evidence, this graph is based on uh, fMRI data of about 13 participants. And it's not even representing fMRI data, it's a mathematical derivation that is not even directly related at all to the fMRI data. So more like a metaphor rather than real fMRI data. And recently there's even a debate as of whether this effect might be an artifact of the way the fMRI data is being processed or whether it's a real phenomenon. So also there, even though the Rebus model I think has intuitive plausibility, it is good to remain critical. Uh, because it is often misused and overinterpreted. So we've covered the pharmacological effects, the neurocognitive effects, and surely something about the psychological mechanisms involved in psychedelics. What do these substances actually do to our subjective experience? So one of the key mechanisms that has been proposed to account for the therapeutic effects of psychedelics is that they appear to be able to trigger a mystical experience. So those are the experiences that, James, uh, that William James already talked about in his uh, book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. So he defines mystical experiences according to a number of characteristics, including feelings of unity, ineffability, the impossibility to put the experience in words, noetic quality, that even though you're not able to put it in words, you still have the feeling or the insight that you gain something from it. You learn something about yourself or about the world. Paradoxical quality, that somehow because it's impossible to put it into words, at the same time you still gain something from it. Loss of sense of space and time, complete absence of where you are, what the time is, how time perception works. Transiency, it's a temporal phenomenon. It, the mystical experience is not an everlasting phenomenon, but it's only temporary, and then people return to their ordinary experience. And positive effect and bliss. And in the 1960s, there was a lot of research, mostly among religious scholars, focusing on the question, can psychedelics, can artificial substances induce authentic mystical experiences? Because so far, mystical experiences had been reported only in the literature among the mystics who had practiced meditation or sensory deprivation or fasting or extreme physical exercise. So some of these uh, mystics indeed had full-blown mystical experiences. But is it the case indeed that by just giving people magic mushrooms or psilocybin or LSD, you can provide a kind of gateway uh, or a fast route to mystical experiences? And this was basically what was shown by Walter Pankey's Good Friday experiment in 1962 that had the aim to show that people in the right set and setting in a church, the study was conducted in a church at, uh, uh, um, at the university campus, medical, uh, not medical, theological students were given a high dose of psilocybin and most of these students indeed had a full-blown mystical experience. Not only that, the experience was the same in intensity and characteristics as those reported by authentic mystics in religious traditions, but also the experience had 
quite profound and lasting impact on people's lives, up to the extent that even one year, 10 years, and 30 years after the experience, people rated the experience among the most important life events they ever encountered. In the same category, in the same top five as the birth of the first child, or uh, the loss of a loved one, or uh, a major accident that you experienced. So a really meaningful experience that can have a profound impact on people's lives. So this gave idea to the, uh, to the research from Roland Griffiths, uh, who was a researcher at Johns Hopkins University, who basically replicated the Good Friday experiment 40 years uh, later on in a better way, in a better controlled way, and he basically replicated the same finding, that psilocybin in the right setting can trigger mystical experiences that have a profound impact on people's life uh, and that have profound personal significance. And he has proposed that the mystical experiences are the key mechanism that explain why psychedelics are so useful for treating a wide variety of psychopathological disorders, such as depression, end-of-life anxiety, because they confront people with an overview, with putting life in a different perspective, with the fragility of life, uh, with insight that they gain something meaningful out of it, and that this might be the key mechanism for why psychedelics might be so useful in uh, the treatment of different disorders. But other mechanisms have been proposed as well, because many people uh, who uh, uh, think about psychedelics, I already mentioned this in the beginning, have all these associations with the weird effects that psychedelics trigger. Fireworks, beautiful visual effects, multisensory associations, synesthetic experiences. And it has also been suggested that it is mostly the feelings of awe, as it is called, being overwhelmed by something that is fast, that uh, that overwhelms you, that is bigger or grander than yourself, that that is the primary mechanism of action of psychedelics. Because the feelings of awe actually induce a need for accommodation. They trigger a need to revise your current existing beliefs and mental schemes about the world. And that this might also be one of the mechanisms that could explain why psychedelics uh, can be useful. A third psychological mechanism that has been proposed is uh, the idea that psychedelics work as an emotional amplifier. And this idea goes back to the work of Stanislas Grof, who did a lot of research on psychedelic psychotherapy in the 1960s, and when psychedelics were put on the class, or, or were put on the in, in the class of classified substances, he continued to develop other ways to do research on altered states of consciousness. But he argued that these substances work as unspecific amplifiers and make the deep unconscious dynamics available for conscious processing. That's exactly one of the mechanisms that I, that I think is also portrayed in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, as you saw in the movie uh, clip, uh, Trip of Compassion. They bring to the surface repressed emotional memories and make things more accessible that are deeply hidden in our unconscious. And that's already part of the word psychedelic itself, mind-revealing. They bring to the surface what somehow you knew already, but at the same time it remained hidden, and psychedelics can bring this to the surface. And the fourth a uh, psychological mechanism is supernatural encounters. So many people who have taken psychedelics report that somehow they had the feeling as if they were connecting to a different reality, that they were traveling to a different universe, that they had a feeling that their brain was an antenna that triggered into or that tuned into a different consciousness. Or with DMT or ayahuasca experiences, many people report actually meeting with spiritual entities and having really the feeling that these entities were real and were having a mind and life independent uh, of the person, his, him or herself. And recently, a study by Chris Timmermans from Imperial College and uh, colleagues has shown that psychedelics can even result in changes in people's metaphysical beliefs. 
Somatic physical beliefs refer to your beliefs about the nature of reality. So you can be a reductionist, or you can be a dualist, or you can be a belief in supernatural phenomena, that for instance spiritual entities exist. Uh, and he has shown that when people uh, do, for instance, a psychedelic retreat, so they, he did a measurement before they were attending the retreat and after the retreat, he showed that people become basically more spiritual. They believe more strongly in spiritual phenomena, are more open to the idea that the world might not be just materialistic stuff, but there might also be transcendental spiritual stuff. And that we might actually have a mind that exists independent from our body. Somehow, psychedelics trigger this idea, this very compelling experience that it's not just our brain and our body, but that there's more to reality than we perceive. So those are the different psychological mechanisms that have been proposed. Mystical experiences, feelings of awe, enhanced perception of emotion, and supernatural encounters. Where does this leave us? Concluding remarks. I covered a lot. So in terms of the different mechanisms, I first focus on the pharmacological mechanism, so the activation of the receptors, the increased neuroplasticity driven by the BDNF, the activity of trigger neurons and the anti-inflammatory mechanism. We discussed the neurocognitive level, the filter model, the rebus model, the claustrum model, and we shortly went over the psychological level. Mystical experiences, feelings of awe, enhanced perception, and supernatural encounters and beliefs. And of course, in the end, there must be a relation somehow between these different levels of explanation. It's not only the case that psychedelics purely act at the pharmacological level and that you can single out just the pharmacology to yield the effects. Because of course what we experience at a psychological level has an, uh, also has a correlate at what happens at the brain level and must also be instantiated somehow by a level of neurotransmitters. And also it's very clear that if you block the serotonin receptor that the subjective effects do not come about. So these subjective effects are instantiated through the pharmacological mechanism. So somehow these levels are associated, but exactly how they're associated remains a puzzle to be solved. Not only that, there remain more puzzles to be solved because there are two crises uh, that I think we should avoid with the current psychedelic revival in terms of the research that is currently being conducted. And the first one is we should avoid another war on drugs. So in the 1960s, there was also a lot of interest in psychedelic research, but it all came to a stop at the end of the 1960s uh, with a uh, war on drugs and uh, call that uh, psychedelic research uh, should be stopped because it was kind of dangerous and it might drive people crazy, etc. And I think we're still facing the same threat that if uncareful use of these substances somehow uh, provide a cause for alarm that this could uh, counter the whole psychedelic revival that we're currently seeing. And that's why I think it's important to be super careful when talking about these substances, but also with doing research uh, with them and with a clinical setting. And that's why I'm also very cautious about the development of, for instance, psychedelic retreats or practitioners who offer psychedelic therapy, but who are not certified for doing so. Because you only need one case of a patient who actually gets out of his mind or commits suicide, and this might pose a threat for all the current uh, psychedelic research that is ongoing. And a second concern that's really close to uh, my own concern uh, about science in general is the replication crisis. Because in psychology, we learned an important lesson that started about 10 years ago, that most of the findings turned out to be non-replicable because of small sample sizes, because of experimenter bias, because of publication bias, only positive results were published. And since then, a lot of new initiatives have been taken to improve psychological science, to improve neuroscience and also other fields. But so far, psychedelic science uh, has remained a bit out of the scope of this uh, 
of replication crisis, but I see a similar problem there. Because if you closely look at all the available evidence, like all the studies I discussed, the clinical studies, the neuroscientific studies, the psychological studies, many sample sizes are rather small and are very reminiscent of the early, early research in psychology that also suffered from small sample sizes. A more important problem maybe even is the lack of appropriate control conditions. So if you don't use an active control in research with psychedelics, after half an hour to one hour, everyone, including the experimenter, the patient, and other uh, people who might be present, already figure out if, if the person was assigned to the experimental condition or the control condition. And I've talked, for instance, to uh, researchers being involved in a clinical trial as a psychotherapist, and they literally said, well, if I figure out that the patient is getting a placebo after one hour, I think, oh my God, it's going to be a long session. Six hours of just sitting there and nothing really happening, that's going to be a long day. And of course, that brings in all types of, in this case, uh, demotivation that also has effects on how the patient is feeling. But if the therapist figures out, hey, he actually got psilocybin, let's get something out of this, that of course also steers the experience and the therapeutic session in a more positive way. So this induces all types of experimental effects. Publication bias, it, the field is slowly improving, and luckily, for instance, I've been able to publish a couple of null results about a placebo-controlled microdosing study. So we basically showed that microdosing did not affect creativity or not, did not affect emotion processing or aesthetic experiences. But still, if you have a positive finding, you can still end up in a high-impact journals, and it's more difficult to get there with null results. Relapse is a problem in many of the clinical trials that we're currently seeing that are being published. People improve, but we don't know how long the improvement lasts. And uh, last but not least, placebo effects. And this, of course, relates also to the lack of a, a control condition. Because, as I said, in the microdosing studies, for instance, we see that people improve irrespective of the condition they're assigned to. But also in psychedelic research, it has been shown that psychedelics make people more suggestible and make people more prone to the placebo effect. And in my own research, I have shown that if you make people believe that they're going to have a mystical experience, for instance, with a placebo god helmet. So we told people we were stimulating their brain, that they might have a mystical experience, even though we did nothing to their brain. But uh, uh, about 20% of the participants in the study still had a full-blown mystical experience. And also other studies have shown that if you give people placebo psychedelics, that also a minority of the people will have a full-blown psychedelic experience on nothing. So you can, by using suggestibility and expectations, also induce quite powerful experiences. And these experiences could also play a role in psychedelic research. So it's good to keep an open eye on the role of placebo effects in this uh, line of research. But of course, there are uh, remedies for this, so replication and innovation. So replicate existing research, look closely at how expectancies play a role in ongoing trials, use active placebos in your research, and uh, with a grant from NWO, I hope to be able to contribute to this development in the coming years as well. Maybe a final concluding remark. Uh, how do I see the future of psychedelics? As said, I think it's really good to be cautious about uh, the, um, the informal use of psychedelics, uh, like self-medicating, uh, trip sitters, doing it in a therapeutic setting, because ma in many cases, these people are not trained well to work with patients or with people, even though there's a lot of know-how in the uh, recreational and religious use of psychedelic circuit as well. But the way forward, I think, is that we need the long and winding road of more clinical trials involving placebo-controlled research, but also active placebos with larger sample sizes. And then hopefully, if the results hold up and 
show that indeed psychedelics for a certain class of patients can be used as a catalyst to induce change in their behaviors and their beliefs that ultimately we will see that substances like MDMA and psilocybin and LSD will be approved by the EMA as approved medicines for the treatment of different disorders and that if you're depressed, maybe in 10 or 15 years from now, you can go to your general practitioner and together with him or her, you can determine, hey, what therapy would suit me best? Uh, should I go for cognitive behavioral therapy or SSRIs or mindfulness or a combination maybe also with uh, psychedelics? And I think there's really a niche there for psychedelics for certain personality types that can be useful and future research will have to show specifically how and when. I would like to thank you for your attention and your involvement, and uh, I'm sure we have some time for questions. Thanks. That was the lecture. Interested in more? Then check out our website, social media, or YouTube for upcoming events, or as you did just now, to listen or watch some of our previous events. Thank you for listening.